0: Amen to that. Go ahead and be seated. Someone said to me this past week that after three weeks of my being out of the pulpit, this better be one really great sermon. (laughs) Yeah, it's not going to (laughs) be. It is one really great passage, though. This year, we are looking at the book of Acts, the biblical account of the apostles' ministry in the early church. The Acts of the apostles begins with Jesus saying to the apostles right before his ascension, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Acts begins with a series of accounts that alternate between the church gathered together and then the church out into the world, first into Jerusalem and then up into Judea and down into Samaria. And then with Paul's first missionary journey, the gospel witness begins going out to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said it would. The spread of the gospel out into the world resulted in the issue of circumcision as a major question for the church to address. And so elder representatives from the churches gathered together at what most people call the Council of Jerusalem, but we Presbyterians affectionately called the first General Assembly, the Jerusalem General Assembly. And right after preaching that, uh, ruling elder Towner Scheffler and I were representative commissioners to the 45th PCA General Assembly in Greensboro, North Carolina, to discuss the various questions that the church faces today. All that brings us to the end of chapter 15 in the book of Acts and the start of Paul's second missionary journey. This journey has a very different start than the first one. But right from the start, we see the sovereign God do some things that only our great God could pull off by his magnificent providence so that we might see it. Before we read the word, let's go before the author in prayer. God of revelation, as we have worshiped in song and in prayer, so we now worship and study. The study of your word, O oh Lord. And so we pray that your spirit would come and bear witness to the reading and to the preaching of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy And only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. When I originally outlined this sermon series, I was going to do all of chapter 15 as one sermon and then all of chapter 16 together as one sermon. But upon further review, it seemed to me that the events at the end of 15 and beginning of 16 really needed special attention. I was just talking to my wife this morning, in fact, that this is one of those sections that's easier to teach than it is to preach because there is so much nuance that needs to be considered in this important set of events and questions that will come to mind that it would be so good to dialogue, the questions as they arise from the text. So let me encourage you that if you have specific questions that you find coming, that you would seek me out that we might be able to talk through those things. But let's... Hear this uh, together, uh, beginning at verse 36 and then going through verse 5 of chapter 16. Listen again to God's perfect word. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. In these two accounts, we see the sharp disagreement with Barnabas and the sharp disagreement with Timothy. Let's first look at the sharp disagreement with Barnabas. It begins, verse 36, that Paul says, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Shows the great ministry heart that not only wants to reach people to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but also to disciple those believers. It is a good reminder to us that mission and outreach involves more than getting people saved. It never means less than that, but it does mean more the disagreement arises about whether or not to take with them John Mark. You may recall that John Mark, his name is John, but also uh, and more often called Mark, is Barnabas' cousin, and he initially went on the first journey with Paul and Barnabas, but according to Acts 13.13, he turned back early into that missionary journey. So Barnabas wants to take Mark on this second trip, but Paul did not think it wise to take him. There was lots of speculation about why Mark left and about why Paul was so insistent in not taking him this time. Was Mark immature and homesick? Is that why he left? And Paul thought maybe he had not matured enough. Was it the fact that Paul had become the leader instead of Barnabas and this bothered Mark and Paul wasn't sure if Mark could follow his lead? Was it the fact that Mark had not been to these places and Paul thought that only those who had gone on the first trip should be going again? Again, it's speculation about why Mark left, and as speculation, we need to be careful not to draw conclusions where there is not clarity. So here are the things that we do know. It has been several months between these two journeys. Paul and Mark have certainly spent much time together. So this is not a reactionary thought. Paul is not assuming that Paul has not grown, and he's not bearing a sinful grudge against Mark. And that's important as we come to verse 39, that they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. The word translated sharp disagreement is really interesting. When it is a verb, it usually means provoke and gets consistently translated that way. In fact, it's the same word that we'll see later in Acts 17, verse 16, that while Paul was in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols but the same word is also used in a positive manner in hebrews 10:24 let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works we are to stir up one another to spur one another on to love and good deeds and so to provoke or to incite sometimes a sharp disagreement can result in new inspiration, a new idea. The word in the noun form is an English word used in medicine, a paroxysm. I had to look this one up because I didn't know this one. But a paroxysm means a sudden attack or convulsion. Paroxysmal attacks are a sudden recurrence or intensification of symptoms like a seizure or spasm. All the evidence then points to the fact that this sharp disagreement is not loaded with sin the way most disagreements are. This is not two self-centered, strong-willed, insistent on getting their own way kind of guys. This wasn't an ongoing disagreement. Paul and Barnabas don't hate each other. They didn't bear a grudge. They don't think ill of the other. They were brothers called to different ministry initiatives. And by God's providence, it was this sharp disagreement that revealed that God was calling them in two different directions to follow two different ministry paths. So let's remember who Barnabas is and the relationship that he and Paul share. It's Acts 4.36 where we first meet Barnabas, and we find out that his name is actually Joseph, and it's the apostles who call him Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, His personality is that he was an encourager. He's Mr. Positivity. And we're also told that he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is an incredibly humble man who loves God and who wants to encourage others. And right after Paul was converted, Paul tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. And Acts 9.27 tells us Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas is the one who first stands up for Paul. And then the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to investigate all the things that were happening in the church in Antioch, and rather than trying to become a super pastor of Antioch, Barnabas goes to Tarsus to go and get Paul, and to say, "Let's go and co-pastor this church together in Antioch." And that's what they do. And then in Acts fourteen fourteen, Luke calls both Paul and Barnabas apostles. The Scriptures consistently present Barnabas in the best possible light. In 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul affirms Barnabas. And he would have written that after this event. So the sharp disagreement is not a sinful disagreement. The two of them remained in fellowship. And so the point of the disagreement is whether or not Mark should come with them. Paul does not think poorly of Mark. Three times in later letters, Paul affirms Mark. In Colossians 4.10, Paul writes to the church in Colossae uh, that Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Not just an affirmation of Barnabas, but of John Mark. Welcome him. And then in Philemon, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, Here he calls Mark, my fellow worker. And most remarkable of all is 2 Timothy 4, in which Paul, near the end of his life, writes to Timothy asking for Timothy to come, but then also says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. In fact, in that section of 2 Timothy 4, if Paul wanted to say anything negative about Mark, it would have been the place to do it because there are two other people that Paul calls out who did wrong. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And so Paul rightly calls out people who did what was wrong and were unrepentant. But while he is doing that, he is affirming Mark as very useful to me. In ministry. This Mark is the one who ultimately wrote what we now know as the second gospel, the gospel account of Mark. And tradition says that Barnabas stayed in Cyprus and died an old man after a long and successful ministry there. All of this is to say that they parted company but did not break fellowship. They parted company but did not break fellowship. In God's providence. God had revealed the fact that he was calling Paul and Barnabas to two different ministry initiatives. And so they parted company, but did not break fellowship. So this is not someone leaving a church because they don't get their way. This is not someone leaving because they disagree with the decisions of church leadership. In fact, verse 40 tells us that Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. They were commended by the brothers They had the affirmation of the church who is sending them. And this also stands to reason that the brothers commended Barnabas and Mark to their ministry initiative in Cyprus. And so this passage wonderfully shows us that it is possible to have a disagreement without being disagreeable. It's possible to argue. It's even right to argue without being argumentative. In fact, it was uh, John Gerstner who used to say, with great wisdom, "Nothing ruins a good argument like a quarrel." <laughs> Our great God, in His providence, can take even sinful disagreements and redeem it for good. But how much more so when we look to the Lord in what we discern the Lord calling us to do? And so, the passage is not saying that we ought to have milk toast meetings with no thinking but stirring up one another to love and good deeds. We should take a stand on things that we regard as important, as they often reveal God's calling on our lives, but we do this in surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ over each of us individually, but also over what we do together as the church. And so that sharp disagreement with Barnabas is really God directing mission endeavors. And now there are two sets of missionaries going in two different directions, double the ministry. So let's look then at chapter sixteen and the sharp disagreement with Timothy. Paul and Silas head out and make stops at Derby and then Lystra. Now it was back in chapter fourteen that we read about Lystra as the place where Paul had healed a man, and the people thought that Paul and Barnabas were Hermes and Zeus come to them in human form. And the people of Lystra first tried to worship Paul, but then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. It is in this town of Lystra that had once tried to worship Paul and then tried to stone him and left him for dead. It is this town where Timothy lives. His father is a Greek, as were many in that town, But Timothy's mother was Jewish and a believer, and they were most likely converted during Paul's first missionary journey. And so we really get to know Timothy in the two letters that Paul writes to him, the great letters. At the beginning of 2 Timothy, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. And then later in chapter 3, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You can see why it is that verse 2 would say that the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Timothy. This young man who grew up learning the Old Testament scriptures from his grandmother and his mother. And having placed his faith in Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the risen Lord, the church leaders have recognized this exceptional young man. And the letter to Timothy even speaks of the prophetic gift that he has received. And so verse 3 is the most interesting. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him. Because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so, Timothy had a sharp disagreement with a knife, if you know what I mean. So here's the crazy thing. Paul has continually argued that circumcision is no longer required. The Council of Jerusalem just affirmed this. You don't have to become Jewish first before you can become a Christian. So why Does he have Timothy circumcised here? Because he wants to make this a non-issue so that it is not an unnecessary hindrance to their ministry. Timothy was considered a Jew because his mother and grandmother were Jewish. However, he was not acceptable to the Jews in that area because they knew his father was Greek and that he was uncircumcised. Now, how it is that people know this about each other, I have no idea. Perhaps they just ask you whether you are or not, and it would seem much more modest simply to have a membership card, right? Got to go to Sam's. Do you have your membership card to get in? Yes. Here. You can go buy something at Sheets. Here's my loyalty card, right? Aren't you glad that the New Testament covenant sign is baptism? Earlier in the service, we read Genesis 17 and the institution of circumcision as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and the nation of Israel as God's chosen people that ultimately points to the church of Jesus Christ as God's chosen people, so that the sign of baptism marks our inclusion into the covenant community. It is important that we remember that in the Old Testament view, circumcision was never thought to save, just like baptism never saves. It is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, a mark of our inclusion in the covenant community. Circumcision never saved, And it was never tied to saving faith, just as baptism does not save, nor is it tied to saving faith. Covenant theology recognizes baptism not as an expression of faith, but as a mark of inclusion into the covenant community, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the Church of Christ in the New. Being baptized is important as a public sign of inclusion. Just as infants in Israel were circumcised, so we baptize infants not to mark salvation, but to mark inclusion in the covenant community. So the covenant sign is still a big deal. It has simply changed somewhat. When people seek to join the church, we ask if they have already been baptized. Some people still have a baptism certificate. You know, occasionally we get a phone call here from another church that is seeking confirmation that a person was baptized because they aren't sure if they were baptized as a child. Uh, And they've moved to a new area and are looking to join a church. In our church records, we have a record of every person who has ever been, been baptized here. Well, the Jerusalem Council had come to agree that circumcision was no longer required. A Gentile does not first have to become Jewish before they can become a Christian. God accepts us not based on our obedience to the ceremonial law, but based on our faith in Jesus Christ. However, this does not mean that circumcision was opposed, but simply not required. It was not required that Gentile converts had to become Jewish, but certainly Jewish believers were still welcome to circumcise within that community context. In the case of Timothy, one commentator said it like this, being a good Christian did not mean being a bad Jew. The Apostle Paul wanted to be all things to all people so that he might win both Jew and Gentile for Christ. He says this in his letter to the Corinthian church. In chapter nine, he wrote, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. And so this is the question that we have to ask ourselves today. In what ways might we restrict ourselves not because we think the restriction is necessary, but because the voluntary restriction is a means toward our sharing the gospel. I have a good friend, uh, good friends, a husband and wife who are ministering in uh, a Muslim part of the world, and they voluntarily observe the Ramadan fastings. If they did not, they would be considered outsiders. They would be shunned and there would be no opportunity for them to share the gospel. We have the freedom in Christ to voluntarily restrict ourselves, to observe the customs of the culture. We do not have the freedom, of course, to sin in the customs of the culture. We know that Jesus was often criticized by the Pharisees because he hung out with prostitutes and sinners. But Jesus did not participate in their sinful activities. And so we should have wisdom to discern where we should and shouldn't be. I'm thankful for those who seek to do gospel ministry to those in adult entertainment, to those dealing with various addictions, gambling, sexual addiction, alcohol, drugs. We're not all called to all of these ministries, especially if there are areas of personal struggle, but the church on the whole is called to do that. And the point is that we need to engage the culture, not simply throw stones at it. The gospel says, we go into the world. We don't expect the world to come to us. Christ came to us and took on human flesh and lived the perfect life that we failed to live. But he became one of us. And so it is that we go into the world to be in the world, but not of the world. We engage the culture and we go. Mission trips often help us to see this. Again, we have the group here this morning from Redeemer PCA in West Virginia. And then in a week, we're sending our group to West Virginia. Hurricane West Virginia and Butler, Pennsylvania have similarities, but also differences. You guys will see quite a few of those I'm sure this week, some perhaps already. We recently heard from missionaries in Taiwan, Honduras, I also heard from Paul and his work in India. The weeks ahead, we're going to hear from our missionaries in Japan and Bulgaria. They help us to understand and think better about our own cultural context so that we understand that being a good Christian doesn't mean being a bad American, nor does it mean that we insist that everyone else become American. Being a good Christian can also mean being a good Taiwanese, Honduran, indian japanese bulgarian the result according to verse 5 is this the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers so let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds let us engage our culture and stir it up to love and good deeds through the knowledge of jesus christ who is the way the truth to life so that indeed the truth sets us free. Amen.